Hey everyone, I hope you're doing well. We are starting a brand new series called Heroes of Faith. And in this series, each week we're going to explore a biblical person of faith like Abraham, Esther, the Apostle Paul, and so on. Now, we'll look at their strengths, we'll look at their weaknesses, and most importantly, we'll look at their faith in God and how God worked in and through their life. Now, this week, we're going to focus on the story of Noah. Now, Noah is by far one of the most well-known individuals in the Bible. And despite Noah's uh, popularity, it's kind of odd if you think about it, how his story has been altered and distorted and watered down for most people. Uh, for instance, many children who've grown up in church uh, have heard the Noah story without really a lot, whole lot of time being spent on how countless men, women, and children basically drowned to death in a global flood that uh, was brought about by God's wrath against mankind's sin. Now, I, I completely understand uh, why we tend to overlook that or gloss over that. Uh, but, I, you know, it, it's, again, interesting and kind of ironic when you think about Noah's Ark being depicted in, uh, in nursery walls painted there or with stuffed animals. Uh, we've kind of um, softened really what's going on in this story uh, for our children. And I also find it incredibly ironic that the LGBTQ community uh, have as its pride symbol the rainbow, which, again, is God's reminder that despite man's incredible wickedness and rebellion, he'll never destroy the world again through flood because of man's sin. All of this is just to illustrate and point out how so often we can overlook or misconstrue the point of major um, stories in the Bible. And so this week, what I hope to do as we launch this series and as we begin looking at Noah's life, I hope that we'll kind of clear up some of these misconceptions. We'll lear learn maybe some new insights about this amazing person uh, in God's redemptive plan and maybe uh, walk away with a better understanding of what Scripture really teaches about this particular individual <clears throat> that God used in a powerful way. Now, we first see Noah in Genesis 5, which uh, is a record of the descendants of Adam through the line of Seth. Now, remember, Adam and Eve had two sons, Cain and Abel. Eventually, Cain became, became jealous that God favored Abel's sacrifice over his own, and he eventually went and killed his brother Abel. Now, then Cain, uh, Cain was sent away, and he begins uh, his family line uh, that seems to increase uh, and more and more ungodliness, ending in Lamech, who uh, has multiple wives uh, and is killing people and justifying uh, doing so. Now, contrast that with Adam and Eve's third son, Seth, who seems to create a godly line of individuals like Enoch, who is said to be so close to God uh, that he's, he's spared from death and simply God takes him away rather than dying like the rest of humanity. And in this genealogy, we read about many individuals who lived in extraordinarily long periods of time, the longest belonging to Methuselah, who lived 969 years. Now, it was sometime during this period that the cryptic and often debated phrase uh, was written uh, that we see in Genesis 6, where it talks about the sons of God saw the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took for, uh, took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. And then a little bit further down it goes, it tells us, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and bore children to them. Those were mighty men, um, those, those were the mighty men who were of old men of renown. 
Now, there are countless opinions as to what is going on in this passage. Some think that it's the commingling of angels, which are the sons of God, and humans, which are the daughters of men. Others think that it's the corruption of God, the godly line of Seth, which would be the sons of God, uh, by marrying the ungodly um, daughters of Cain, uh, which would be the daughters of men. Now, while it's fun to discuss and debate what uh, this passage seems to be pointing to, I don't want us to lose sight of the bigger point and its significance uh, in the life of Noah. The point is that mankind was thoroughly corrupt and something needed to happen. Something needed to change. It could not continue on uh, in the direction that it was going. Now, <clears throat> I imagine that most people watching or listening to this would say that our world today is exceedingly corrupt. Our culture seems to be celebrating sin, uh, condemning what is right and good, most of us cannot remember a time uh, when people were more divided and hostile towards one another. But even with all the sin and all the corruption that we see in the world today, it's still not so bad that God feels like he needs to step in and intervene, at least not yet. Um, so how much worse must it have been during this particular time in Noah's day in biblical history that God saw and he said, you know, I can't deal with it any longer. I can't put up with this any longer. Something has to change. So just put it a little bit into context, it must have been exceedingly worse than what we see going on in the world today, which for many of us is kind of hard to imagine. Now, Noah was born to Lamech. Now, this is not the same Lamech that we see in Cain's line. Uh, and Noah was given the name Noah, which means rest. There is some debate about what this rest actually points to. Something, uh, some think that it was hope that Noah would be the one that God prophesied to Eve about uh, when he said that there would be a son uh, from Eve that would crush the head of, ser of the serpent back in Genesis 3. Others point to Noah um, giving the earth rest from the sinful corruption of mankind on the land. Either way, uh, after about 500 years, Noah has his first son. Now, while there is some debate, it seems likely that Noah's first son was Japheth. Uh, Genesis 10:21 can either be translated as also Shem, the father of all the children of Eber, uh, and the older brother of Japheth. Now, what this translation seems to indicate that Shem is the oldest. Or that very same verse in Genesis uh, 10, 21 could be translated as, and the children born, uh, were born also to Shem, the father of all the children of Eber, the brother of Japheth, the elder. So depending on how the translators uh, understand that and uh, do the work of translation, it could either point to uh, Japheth being the second born or the first born. I believe he was probably the first born. If you calculate the fact that according to Genesis 11.10, that Shem uh, had his first son two years after the flood, when he was 100 years old, then uh, given Noah's age that um, uh, uh, of how old he was um, before and after the flood, he was um, 500, uh, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, 500 before the flood and then 600 years after, afterward. Uh, it seems that Japheth is the oldest, followed uh, two years later by Shem, and then lastly uh, by Ham. That seems to be what Scripture indicates as the birth order of these sons. And, and that's going to be, like I said, a little bit more important going forth. So 
it's around this time that Noah's firstborn, Japheth, when Noah's about 500 years old, that God reveals to Noah that he's going to destroy the earth through a flood. We're told that God reveals this to Noah because God sees that Noah is, quote, a righteous man, blameless in his time, and that Noah, quote, walked with God. Now, we're not really told what this means since this is all before the law of Moses was given. What does it mean that Noah was righteous and blameless and he walked with God? Um, what did that look like? It's likely that Noah doesn't know all of God's standard for living uh, that would one day be revealed through the law of Moses at Mount Sinai. But God judged Noah in the context of the time that Noah lived, and he found him to be blameless, as it says in the text, in his time, or uh, blameless in his generation. Now, I find this incredibly encouraging because it tells me that Noah was not perfect. In fact, if we're going to, um, uh, um, if we were to get into a time machine and travel back to the time of Noah and watch his life, life, I suspect that we would probably see many things in his life that would probably shock us. Uh, Noah didn't have the Ten Commandments to guide him. He didn't know or understand salvation by faith through grace. Um, he certainly didn't know that God loved humanity enough that he would one day send his son in flesh to die for the sins of mankind. Noah didn't know any of those sort of things. Uh, Noah didn't have that level of revelation and guidance that you and I have today. But Noah still followed God as best as he could with what little he had and what little he knew about God. And when God looked at his heart and looked at his effort, he found him to be blameless in that particular generation. So just a quick point of application. It seems to me that when I look at the, the text of Noah and how God interacted with Noah, that God is not nearly as concerned about how much you know as he is about whether you apply and live out what knowledge you do have of God and his will for your life. I find this very encouraging and also very convicting. Am I applying what I do know about um, God in my life? You don't necessarily have to have a PhD or go to a, a, a seminary and, and um, be a preacher, a Sunday school teacher or a deacon or whatever to, to follow God with what you do know. Uh, about his will for your life. So just a little food for thought. So Noah begins to uh, construct the ark. He's given the dimensions of 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. Now, since a cubit is generally the length of the tip of a man's, a grown man's hand to his elbow, or some say anywhere from 18 to 20 inches, that would put the ark at roughly around 510 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. Now, a replica of the ark, which is uh, at the, um, the ark exhibit in Kentucky, uh, has the replica at uh, one and a half football fields in length and seven stories high. So this was an incredible uh, uh, structure, especially given the fact that, as far as we know, uh, the, the people living on the earth at that time probably didn't see a whole lot of rain, uh, probably didn't see um, much ocean. You know, they may have been close to an ocean. We don't really know what the earth looked like at that point because uh, the flood most likely radically changed the face of the earth. But this was an incredible structure to behold 
for any generation, but especially uh, most likely this one as well. Now, during this 120 year massive construction project, Noah preached to the people watching uh, that they needed to repent before God's wrath was poured out. We see this in Second Peter chapter 2, where it describes Noah as a preacher of righteousness. And so we know that as he's building this ark, there will probably be masses of people gathered around trying to figure out what in the world Noah's doing. And while Noah is constructing this, he's preaching to them the judgment of God and the need for them to repent. Now, it was during this time that God brought the animals to be saved onto the ark. Most people think that it was two of every animal, male and female, but that's not exactly what you see recorded in Scripture. It was two of every unclean animal, like pigs and and uh, certain um, uh, animals with cloven hoofs or, or things of that nature, certain birds, like uh, as we'll see in a little bit, the raven and whatnot. But then seven of every clean animal. Most understand that what's being referred to there, when at least when it's talking about the clean animals, is that it's not seven individual animals, but seven pairs. And so it could be anywhere uh, from seven to 14 of the clean animals. Either case, um, this transpired according to Genesis 7, uh, 4, a week before the flood came. So just a week um, before the flood begins to um, cause its devastation, that's when the animals begin filing into the ark. Now, according to Jewish tradition, the flood finally came in the year uh, 2105 BC. Now, on the seventh day of the Hebrew month of Shavon, the rain began to fall. Now, that's going to be important in just a little bit, as we're going to see, because that's how they begin measuring out how long this flood was and, and why that's significant at the end of the flood. We'll talk about that in just a second. But as, as we look at this, not only is it rain coming from the heavens, not only are the, um, the floodgates of heaven opened up, but it also talks about jets of steaming water uh, is said to be shooting forth from the depths of the earth. Now, the Jewish Midrash uh, tells us by Rabbi Yohan uh, that he taught each and every drop of the Holy One caused to come down upon the generation of the flood, he first brought to a boil in Gehenna. Now, Gehenna is a word that she, uh, later used to refer to that valley of Gehenna, which Jesus often points to uh, as the pits of hell. And so, uh, according to this Midrash, it talks about God boils this water in the bowels of the earth and then sends it forth. And it says he caused it uh, uh, to come, he carried it out and dropped it on them. That's according to the Jewish Midrash. And so, it's not just the floodwaters coming, but it's this boiling flood water that is raining upon the earth at this time. This corresponds with Genesis 7, verse 11, that teaches that on that same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open, the floodgates of the sky were open. So this water that was heated by um, uh, the core of the earth is shooting forth kind of like um, uh, uh, these geysers that you see in Yellowstone shooting up this hot uh, water raining down upon the people of the earth at that time. It is at this time that scripture says that God closed the door behind Noah and his family when they went into the ark. Now, many have pointed out that this is a beautiful picture of the gospel, that um, basically you have this judgment and destruction all around the ark of those who refuse to repent. And then there's just this one way of salvation which God provides, and he controls who goes in and who doesn't. It was open to everyone as Noah was preaching repentance. They all could uh, have access to that salvation by going through this one door, but they refused. And once that time was over, that time was over, and no one was able to force their way 
into the art. Now, the art exhibit in Kentucky depicts this message <clears throat> by shining the image of a cross on the door, reminding us that this points to Christ, who is the only way to salvation. Jesus says that I'm the door. And all who want to enter in must uh, go through him. And so it's difficult to um, it's difficult to imagine just how horrible this judgment was. But we have to remember that God in His mercy still provided a way of salvation for people if they would just repent and and, and trust Him and and go through uh, the the provisions that God had made. So imagine now for a moment Noah as as the door is shut. Uh, the rain, the flood is coming, and now him and his family are tossed about in this ship with all these animals, and you can hear outside the screams of everyone you've ever known clawing at the ship, pleading for their lives as the floodwaters just engulf them. Again, you know, this is just a, a poignant reminder to me that just because God calls you to something, whether marriage, parenting, pouring your life out for someone who needs your help or some other uh, ministry endeavor, just because God calls you to something does, um, doesn't mean that it's going to be easy. doesn't mean that it's going to be pleasant. Uh, it doesn't mean that uh, you won't leave um, with, uh, that, that this calling won't leave you with scars afterwards that you'll have to uh, wrestle through. Um, we're not there yet, but as we're going to see in a little bit, Noah, I believe, is is really wrestling with all the things that he encountered uh, during this time of the flood. We see him a little bit later on, and he gets drunk. And I, I, I just wonder if Noah is wrestling with this global uh, catastrophic event that decimated every, uh, every um, person and animal that was on the earth at that time. Uh, and, and so just bottom line, sometimes you do exactly what God wants you to do, uh, and you can still... Um, come out the other end of that still feeling beat up and hurt and, and and trying to pick up the pieces of your life. God never promises that following him would be easy, but it's important that we still trust him and follow him nonetheless. So uh, I know that's kind of a, a, a depressing thought, but I, again, I, I think that we need to be honest and realistic about life. It, God never promises things will be easy. God never promises that just because you follow me, uh, everything will work out in the end. We see that Jesus tells us, pick up your cross and follow him. And so uh, we need to understand that there are going to be times where God calls you to the hard work of obedience. And it's not going to be easy and it's not going to be fun, but we still need to follow him. So uh, we see Noah and his family remain on the ark for roughly 364 days which is roughly a year. There is some debate uh, on that due to the fact that the Hebrews, um, they follow the lunar calendar as opposed to our solar calendar, but essentially they were on the ark for uh, just about a year. Sometimes uh, people calculate it as just a little bit over a year. Now, when the waters begin to recede, Noah first sends out a raven. Uh, this bird uh, is a meat eater. It, it had no problem going around and finding and eating the flesh of the people and animals who died during the flood. And so it never comes back to the ark. And then a week later, uh, Noah sends out a dove, which returns with an olive branch, signifying that plants are now starting to grow and be able to sustain life. And then later, he sends a dove out again, and it, it doesn't return, indicating that the earth is now uh, able to sustain life again. So Genesis 8.13, uh, we see that Noah and his family look out on the first, on the first month uh, that Noah begins uh, um, 
uh, of the year, Noah begins to find dry land. And according to Jewish tradition, this uh, is the holiday of Ro uh, Rosh Hashanah, which uh, the Jews celebrate as God's creation and marks the New Year celebration, which is sometime in uh, late September, uh, somewhere right, right around there. Uh, it's during this festival that they celebrate God's creation and the life that he brings, and they also ask for forgiveness of the past year's sins that they may have committed. Now, this is all significant because the Noah story is all about how God essentially recreates the world because of sin. There are many parallels in Noah's story and in God's creation in Genesis 1 through 3. In Genesis 1, God creates the world out of a watery chaos. And in Noah's story, God recreates life out of a watery chaos. Um, in Genesis uh, 1 through 3, God... Um, begins by bringing his Holy Spirit, or in uh, Hebrew, it's Ruach, uh, which blows across the watery mass um, to begin creation. And in Noah's story, the flood begins to cease uh, when this strong wind blows across the water. In Genesis 1 and 2, God uh, blesses and gives dominion to man over all of creation. And in Noah's story, God blesses him and gives him dominion over creation. And just like in the festival of Rosh Hashanah, uh, where the people, the Jewish people celebrate God's creation work and repent over last year's sin, we see Noah leaving the ark, entering into restored creation and offering a burnt sacrifice to God, perhaps for the sin uh, that um, the world was judged for. Uh, it is at this point that God makes a covenant with Noah that he'll never flood the earth again. And it's also uh, at this point, that God gives Noah permission to eat various animals. Up to this point, mankind was only allowed to eat the fruits and the plants. Uh, but after the flood, we see the first mention of eating animals. Um, they, uh, they finally had the permission to do so. Now, the only restriction given to mankind at this point when it comes to eating animals and eating meat is that it cannot be meat with the blood still in it. So, um, that basically means that if you're going to be getting your steak, you need to make sure that it's it's well done. And so there's a lot of debate as to whether or not that still applies to us. And so um, we won't get into that right now, but uh, just some some interesting stuff uh, to think about in research. Uh, but God also gives the sign uh, at this point to remind everyone of his promise to never destroy the world again through a flood by giving a rainbow. Now, I've recently heard it pointed out uh, that the passage in Genesis 9 never uses the word rainbow. God, uh, God simply says, I will set my bow in the clouds. Now, we understand this as a rainbow, but the point is that the word used here uh, is the word for a bow and arrow, a typical weapon of warfare. Most of us simply chalk this up to Hebrews uh, using that term because that's the general shape of a rainbow, but perhaps uh, there might be a little bit more going on here than we typically think of. For instance, if the word being used here uh, was uh, typically used as an instrument of warfare and the bow uh, in the rainbow is pointed upwards towards the heaven where God is, then perhaps what is being communicated here is that God will not destroy the world <clears throat> through flood again, and that the sign of this promise is a bow pointed not at the earth and mankind as though God is going to bring destruction to the earth again, but it's pointed at God who will one day take on the death that we and our sins deserve. 
uh, and that's through Christ Jesus. And so maybe this is, again, another sign pointing uh, to Jesus Christ um, to remind us that God is going to take the consequences of our sin, that he's not going to dish that out on the world and on, on the people. Again, just a thought, but I think it's a good thought um, worth considering. Now, uh, lastly, after all the success and obedience of Noah, we see him slipping up, getting drunk uh, in his vineyard, and, and, um, and kind of a downward slide for his family. In Genesis 9:20, we read that Noah began farming and planted a vineyard, much like Adam, uh, and he drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself. Again, like Adam, uh, Noah takes from the fruit of a plant, he falls into this sin, and his nakedness is exposed. And so there's a lot of parallels here with what uh, transpired back in Genesis 3. Now, next, what we see is that Noah's youngest son, Ham, it says that he saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers. Now, the other two sons, they clothe their father, and when Noah wakes up and realizes what Ham does, he curses not Ham, but Ham's son, Noah's grandson, Canaan. Now, there are a lot, a lot of questions uh, and debates as to what actually happens here. People are confused uh, when it comes to this passage for several reasons. First, um, people wonder, why is Noah upset with Ham when it's Noah who got drunk and it's Noah who ended up passing out and getting naked? Secondly, a lot of people wonder um, as to why it's, um, while it seems disrespectful for Ham to apparently tease Noah uh, as he's drunk and, and his naked stupor, uh, does it really justify Noah getting so upset that he curses a member of his own family because of this? And then lastly, and perhaps maybe uh, the most confusing of all the uh, things that we see in this passage, why does Noah, instead of cursing Ham, who supposedly did something wrong here, why does Noah curse Ham's son, Canaan, who is Noah's grandson, if it was Ham who actually did the thing uh, that is is um, looked down upon here? Now, there are several theories out there, but I'm just going to give you two that I, I think make the most sense and reconcile the most details in this passage. Uh, the first theory believes that what happened is that Ham took advantage of Noah's drunken stupor to have sexual relations with his mother, Noah's wife. Uh, those who hold this view point to Leviticus uh, 20 verses 17 through 20, which refer to incestuous relationships and repeatedly refer to sexual acts with a man's wife as uncovering that man's nakedness. So with this view, when Genesis says that Ham saw Noah's nakedness, um, according to Leviticus 20, verses 17 through 20, it could actually be a euphemism referring to an incestuous relationship with Noah's wife, Ham's mother. <clears throat> now, according to that particular view, this is why Noah cursed Ham's son, Canaan, instead of Ham himself. The argument is that Canaan was the child born out of this incestuous union, and that's the reason Noah curses his grandson instead of Ham, that Ham slept with his mother, Noah's wife. She ended up getting pregnant, having Canaan. Noah, you know, seeing all this, seeing what uh, Ham had done, curses Canaan because he is this incestuous child uh, born of this sin. Now, the other view is that instead of Ham sleeping with his mother, that uh, he castrated Noah. Uh, that those who hold this, this position, this view, uh, point to the fact that Noah seemed to know immediately upon waking up something 
had happened. He woke up and it, uh, he knew immediately uh, something important is missing here. And so he, he, he curses Canaan um, because that is the descendant of Ham and Ham has now robbed Noah of having other, any other further descendants uh, from, uh, from his line. And so again, this was a really important uh, uh, thing in ancient cultures, being able to uh, have children, have multiple children. The fact that Noah only had three children, many see as maybe something happened to where uh, Noah was not able to have any more children. And they think maybe Ham might have castrated his father. Again, why, uh, why Ham would sleep with his mother, why Ham would uh, castrate Noah, we don't really know. We're, uh, this is These are just the two most prominent um, positions or theories on what's actually going on here, trying to reconcile uh, um, what we see in this particular account. Whatever the case may be, the thing that I would like to leave you with about the life of Noah is that in Noah, we see that God does not need perfect people. Just like um, uh, just like people today are not perfect, we fall, we fail, we have all kinds of, of mess ups. God doesn't need perfect people. He just needs people who are willing to trust him. And when we trust him, that doesn't guarantee that everything's going to be easy or enjoyable, but we should trust him all the same because God is worthy of it. Life's not easy for those who, who uh, run from God. God's not. Uh, life's not necessarily easy for those who trust God, but either way, we ought to trust God nonetheless, even if things don't go easy for us. And just because you're faithful in one area or in one season of life, watch out and be careful. Some of our worst failures come right after our greatest triumphs, as we see here with Noah. He was obedient. He did all that God wanted him to, but he still had, uh, towards the end of his life, uh, this, this tragedy that happened within his family. Well, there's a lot that can be said. I know there, I probably didn't touch on everyone's uh, questions that they may have about the life of Noah, but I hope that that uh, kind of um, uh, gave you some things to think about, things to wrestle with, things to look into yourself. I hope this is a blessing for you. We're going to leave it there for this week. Next week, we're going to uh, pick back up and explore the life of Abraham. So we hope that you'll join us there. But until then, take care and God bless.